Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. My name is Herb. I'm an alcoholic. This is not a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not a meeting of any form of work connected in any official way to the, any 12-step fellowship. As you see on the screen, this is a work-shop, <laughs> meaning hopefully at some point you'll be able to participate in the work of what we're doing today. It's on forgiveness. The subject today is forgiveness. I'll facilitate the first, oh, probably hour, Dr. Fred Luskin, who actually wrote the book, literally, on forgiveness. Forgive for Good is one of his books. It might have been his first. And <clears throat> he and I shared this venue last year, and it's recorded edited and on YouTube for those of you who are interested. It's sort of the overview and basics of forgiveness from my standpoint, from the 12-step process, my both my knowledge and my experience with it. After I finished that process, I did read his book, which confirmed that it's a human process. And he describes in his book a process that's very similar, parallel to the 12-step process, obviously with different vocabulary and different assumptions. <clears throat> and that's why we've hooked up to bring what he calls the secular viewpoint, that would be his from a psychological standpoint, and the spiritual stand, uh, viewpoint, which is mine from the 12-step standpoint. <clears throat> I plan on giving an introduction uh, to the topic, sort of the parameters from my view of my experience with the 12-step process, and then introducing uh, Dr. Luskin so that uh, we get into some of, as he called it, the nuts and bolts of this work. Um, Fred has another book. In fact, I'm two-thirds of the way uh, through reading it. And it's called uh, Forgiveness in Relationships. And it's really good. <laughs> it's just um, because it's so practical and uh, very inspiring as to how to bring that component into your relationship to make it more robust. So, um, <clears throat> and then uh, also you'll be seeing uh, a series of flyers coming from me on the spirituality series. This is part of the spirituality series for this year. That's a once a month on a Saturday, three hour workshop. Um, and I've been discerning uh, the content of it. It hasn't been complete up until now. Now it's complete. Um, and it seems because of this work, uh, the work of forgiveness, and because of the beginning of the work as I've experienced it, uh, steps, uh, step four, column three and column four concerning the resentment. I'm, I'm actually quite being quite bold about uh, two themes, and that is a quarterly Saturday, once every quarter on a Saturday, 
helping people with column three, column four from the resentment inventory. That began the forgiveness process for me. I didn't know that at the time in 1988, when I began the work of the steps for the first time with a person who knew what they were doing, I was four years sober. I don't recommend waiting that long, but that's just my story. <clears throat> and, and then when I finished that work, I realized that steps eight and nine were the conclusion to the forgiveness process. And that's my approach to it. Step four, column three and column four in the resentment inventory. That, that very focus was the beginning of the forgiveness process. All of the steps are important, but my observation is and my experience is and my interpretation is that steps eight and nine brought it to conclusion. Because forgiveness is about freedom. My freedom, my freedom from the delusion that I'm a victim, my freedom from the reality and recognition that I'm fully responsible for my life, 100%. Today, I may have been hurt and threatened and my information and my emotions and, and even sometimes my body impacted by circumstances or people forever changing my life. That, that may be true in my history, but today I am not a victim. Today I am responsible 100% for the way I think and the way I feel and the way I behave. Can't change the past. I can only release it. When we look up the word in a dictionary, which is what I did as part of an assignment, my dictionary said it's a decision to release. Look at the hand. It's such a powerful gesture for such a simple process, simple but not easy, a decision to release. <clears throat> And then the balance of the process bringing me into and through step nine, finishing step nine, finishing the amends, changing my behavior. The first part of making amends is for me to commit to and try to change. And the second part of amends is to repair the damage to the best of my ability. We can't undo the past. We cannot change history but we can address it. The St. Francis prayer addresses forgiveness. When we forgive them, we are forgiven. The prayer of uh, Jesus in the New Testament, to the extent that we release them from their debt, we are released from ours. And these are not necessarily legitimate quotes from either of them, but they're interpretations of perennial philosophies, perennial principles. The law of physics doesn't change, no matter what century it is or what country it is. The law of physics doesn't change. The law of gravity, the principle underneath this release, 
this forgiveness doesn't change no matter what century, no matter what country, no matter what culture, no matter what tradition. That's the nature of a principle. It's universal and eternal. <clears throat> so with that short introduction, let's just take a look at some thoughts here. But let's pray first. <clears throat> I've changed the serenity prayer. Prayers are not about words, right? And especially acknowledging my co-facilitation with Dr. Luskin. He doesn't come from a religious or even spiritual. And those are two different perspectives. He comes from what he calls lovingly, <laughs> with a smile on his face, a secular perspective. He's a psychologist. He's a scientist. Prayer doesn't change anything outside of us. It's an intention that changes us. I hope you can hear that. If that's the only thing you hear today, that may be life-changing. Prayer changes nothing outside of us. We don't have that kind of power. But it changes everything inside of us. Our intention is the purpose of prayer. So let's try this one, talking about influence. Spirit of the universe, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot influence. Courage to change the things I can influence. And wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that the truth? So here you are. There, we have a nice, wonderful, large group today. We're going to take some time for Q&A, for response, for sharing of experience, for sharing of questions, for challenges. It's all fine. You'll know when we do that. There'll be times when we do that. We'll announce it. <clears throat> Make notes if, in fact, you want to remember your question, your comment, or your share your experience. I hope you have a pen and pencil because you, we may say something that you might want to remember or think about. But I also will raise some questions during at least my talk and probably uh, Dr. Luskin will too. Here's the first one. Do you hold any unforgiveness right now? Any circumstance, any event, any person in your life, including yourself? Any unforgiveness? Do you hold it? Make a note, maybe one word or two. We're not looking for catharsis. We're not looking for therapy. We're not looking for story right now. Those are items for a different day, probably. But have something very specific and concrete in mind that you're holding right now. I cannot forgive this. No, that's your, that's your consciousness or your unconsciousness. Unforgiveness is a bondage. You saw my hand representing the symbol of the definition of the word forgiveness was opening my palm, opening my fingers in release. Well, the opposite is true. Unforgiveness is bondage. Pathetic Herbie, age 48, 
back in the day when I first did this work, the work of the 12 steps. I was in the bondage of addiction, but I was also in the bondage of being a victim. If you'd met my father, I could explain myself. If you met my mother, I could explain myself. If you met my monastery that I had been in for seven years, that would explain an awful lot. If you had met any of the bosses I had ever had, there were four, that would explain a whole bunch of my history. Please listen to me. Oh, my God, it was such a boring story by my standards today, because the story was all the same. They did me wrong. And as long as I held on to that bondage, there I am, tattered and torn, Forgiveness is a process. It's a process of becoming aware, number one. Although I was trained academically in lots of things, philosophy, psychology, theology, graduate educations in all three of those areas. I had an understanding of human nature as consciousness and free will, the two components that make us specifically human. But it was all in my head. It wasn't in my heart. It was all in my head. It had never been translated into any practical application. This man who helped me, I call him a big book step mechanic. He said, Herb, look at my hands. You have a lot of information, but you have no transformation. You have a lot of information academic knowledge, which has never been filtered through your heart to your feet. So there's, it has not impacted you as a human being. You have not changed. He quoted Einstein. The consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. Brilliant. I cannot fix my mind with my mind if, in fact, my mind is in fact the source of the problem. So again, I've uh, fine-tuned what some of you are aware of as the set-aside prayer. Again, prayer is about intention, not about the words. But I've scripted the words today for today's journey. Spirit of the universe, please, Set aside everything. Notice I'm asking for spiritual intervention. I don't have the power nor the knowledge to set aside anything because I'm not sure what to set aside. What's true, what's not. What's helpful, what's not. Spirit of the universe, please. Set aside everything I think I know about myself, my hurts and resentments, my unforgiveness, and you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my pain and suffering, my forgiveness, and especially you. Forgiveness is a process. Words, please hear the words. If you wanna have a mental image of that to really help you sort of embrace what we're talking about because it will bring patience. 
Otherwise, you'll be so frustrated with yourself when things don't work out on your timetable. Dimmer switch. My most favorite metaphor for the journey, the human journey, the development journey, the forgiveness journey, the spiritual journey in terms of coming from darkness to light, the dimmer switch. When you press it, it goes on at a very low voltage, and there's just a little bit of light. Hardly perceptible, but as you lean gently into the dimmer switch, it goes up a notch at a time. Notice you're leaning into it. Notice there is a dimmer switch. Notice there is some effort on your part, and the lights get brighter. And the lights get brighter. And the lights get brighter. With every little effort, with every little twist and turn, with every little decision, with every little action, the dimmer switch goes up. It's a metaphor for daily progress, incremental progress. It's a process of releasing. Now, you can make up your mind today, right now, that you want to release and be released from. Or you can say, no, that'll never happen. It's just, it's, it's my warp and woof now. It's part of my cellular structure now. Herb, don't you understand the nature of trauma? It's cellular. It changes your biology. No, I actually know that. That's right, it does. But I also know that biology can change. There's a psychiatrist at UCLA, Dan Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. He's written many books. He has studied the human brain. A psychologist, excuse me, a psychiatrist who has studied the human brain for its functioning. And he says, when we know something, it doesn't change our brain. When we feel something, it doesn't change our brain. When we do something, hear it, please. When we do something, it changes our brain. When we move our feet, when we behave differently, the brain synapses fire differently. Those tentacles in the brain, those neurons in the brain, those synapses in the brain that connect the cellular structure in the brain grow and fire differently. So he, in fact, says, I believe he invented the phrase, synapses that fire together, wire together. And we can change our brain. We did not know that 20 years ago. Up till then, scientists said, once the cells are dead, the brain doesn't change and it's lost forever. I'm not a scientist in the area of physiology at all. I, I read stuff like that. So I'm repeating what I've heard and I think it's credible. When we change our behavior, we change our brain. Organically, physiologically, biolo biologically when we change our behavior, not our thoughts, not our feelings, 
not our intentions, our behavior. And we're released. But look at pathetic Herbie here. Released from addiction in 1984, but clueless, still a victim in 1988, until he determined to look at and see the bars that he was holding. Notice there's no walls, there's no ceiling, there's no floor. There's just me struggling and frustrated by the bars I'm looking through, thinking I'm in jail, and all I have to do is let go of the bars. Easy, easier said than done. The problem is I have these hurts and resentments. Don't you know? I've had emotional and verbal abuse, and, and it has shaped and misshapened me and my perceptions and my life actually has been determined. And I have a deep, deep, deep volcanic lava hot resentment toward my father. I'm a victim. And I'm powerless. My experience was I went through the step four, column three and column four, as I mentioned at the beginning. And I began to see I'm not a victim. I'm fully responsible. I'm not responsible for my dad's drunkenness and his behavior. I'm not responsible for the mistreatment that I've had in my life. I'm not responsible for that. Let's just say it's all true. But I am responsible today to stand and look at it and to release it. I am responsible for my thoughts about it. I am responsible about my feelings about it. I am responsible to let it go. And then I will experience freedom. The two things that make me specifically human are that I have consciousness, that I know that I know, and that I have free will. Yeah, 100% free will in, 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 in the area of decisions and choice concerning my behavior. Now, some of it's predetermined. Any of you that have studied psychology, basic Pavlov theory knows that I've been conditioned. We each have been conditioned by our genetics at the very core level. But then by our families and by our cultures and by our countries and by our traditions and by our parents and by our schools and by our families and by our exposure and by our psychology and our education. Yes, we have been conditioned. And the whole point of my responsibility is to get a handle on the lenses through which I look. Well, that's pretty tricky stuff because the lenses through which I'm looking are the lenses with which I'm looking. And now I've been asked to look at the very lenses through the lenses that I'm looking. That's what happened in column three and column four. It began to help me look at the lenses through the lenses I was looking to see that my lenses through which I was looking were corrupt, were distorted. And to follow through then with a process that ground those lenses to clarity 
removed the blue lenses so that I am not looking at blue because that was a delusion. I'm looking through clear lenses and I'm looking at reality objectively for the very first time. I was able to see that I didn't see. Freedom is a process. The 12 steps are a, from my standpoint, this is my interpretation. Spirituality is a fancy word. I tried not to use it. It, it raises lots of barriers from people. The 12 steps is a process for a relationship. Now, I could have just as well put in the place of power. I could have put in life, L-I-F-E. I thought about it, but I, because the whole concept of the 12-step process is based on foundationally that I am powerless. There is a certain amount of powerless. And it's not that knowledge is going to fix it, nor is it my willpower going to fix it. That there's something endemic at the very heart, at the very heart of the very heart, at the soul of the soul, in which I don't have sufficient or effective power. I'm not here to do a teaching on step one but I am to give a sense of this foundational concept. With a graduate education in philosophy, a graduate education in theology, a graduate education in psychology, and years and years and years and years and years and years of exposure to really good people and really good workshops and really good information, I still did what I did not want to do, and I didn't do what I wanted to do. I seemed to be hijacked by something in me that required some form of exorcism. I'm not speaking religiously. I'm speaking metaphorically, maybe poetically. And I need to connect to some sense of energy, some sense of force, some sense of source, some sense of power other than myself. A relationship with power. A relationship with reality. I could say that with a capital R. Certainly a relationship with self for the very first time when I finished the, that second phase of the step process. I was able to take full responsibility. No, no, hear me, please. You hear it in the rooms all the time if you're in a 12-step program. What's your part? Well, I realized I don't have a part. That's so unorthodox. I do not have a part in my failure. I do not have a part in my resentment. I do not have a part in my unforgiveness. I have 100%, not a part. You want freedom. You own your life. You own your feelings. You own your mistakes. You own your history. Not taking responsibility for circumstances out of your control. Not taking uh, responsibility for people and their influence and their impact, negative impact, some of it criminal, on you. Life-changing stuff. Permanent damage. Absolutely. It, it's true. It did happen. But here you are. 
And this man who took me through the work lovingly but coldly said, now deal with it. Now deal with it. This is the hand that you've been dealt. It's not fair or unfair. It's not healthy or unhealthy. It just is. Deal with it. The next two steps are about my relationship with others. So you see, this process can, can be converted to a very secular process. Although at the beginning, of course, power is in all caps to connote that there is some mystery here. I'm very comfortable with the term. I don't need to know what it is. I made a decision that it is, and I operated on the basis that it is, and now I have no doubt that it is, because I look back over my shoulder and I see what's happened. One and one make five. I call that spiritual math. Regular math, one plus one equals two. Spiritual math. One plus one equals five because I've been taken to a place way beyond my ability to take me. Some level of power entered to my life as a component to the work that I did. And I had an outcome that was disproportionately larger than my contribution to it. And then I lived that way in 10, 11, and 12, the best kept secret in the world, out in the rooms. I will be doing some work on that over the next year concerning steps 10, 11, and 12 and, and how they contribute to our daily life, our daily way of living, how they can maintain our relationship with reality in a healthy way so that we can navigate the speed bumps of life. Bill introduces the term a spiritual arch through which we walk to a new freedom. He doesn't say the word that step one is the foundation, but he implies it. I see step one as the foundation. Step one is surrender. He says admit powerlessness. Complete defeat, hopelessness, and desperation. I use the word surrender there for step one. And then because of that devastation, both of addiction and of unmanageability, the two components of step one, I'm brought to a place where I'm open for the very first time to a power other than myself and challenging myself. I'm not going to spend any time on it, but if you want to have a very confrontational experience, ask yourself what you believe about God, what you believe about higher power, what you believe about spirituality. What do you believe about the power in the universe, a power other than yourself? What do you believe? Write something out on that. This is an exercise for a different day, but make a note if, in fact, you're interested in a curtain-rending experience. Use that set-aside prayer of some kind 
ask that question, what do I believe, write out an answer, and then in all willingness, ask yourself, and how do I behave in light of what I believe I believe? I discovered my agnosticism, and I made that decision that there was a power that was for the very first time from my very soul. Bill calls it the cornerstone, which then allows us to make a decision to have a relationship with that power. A decision to turn. I use the term alignment. It's not in the big book for those of you who are in a 12-step program. The word alignment's not in the first 164 pages, but it's my term that captures the spirit of Step three, that Bill calls it the keystone, that linchpin that holds the entire arch together. Steps eight and nine is the end of the process. Meanwhile, we do step four to identify the obstacles in us to that relationship. Step five, to name them. Step six, to see how they manifest in our character defects and our behavior. Step seven, uh, recognition that I've tried really hard to change and I have not changed. Therefore, I need, again, spiritual intervention. I need some type of power intervention in order to be able to change, to be able to do what I want to do and not do what I want to do or don't want to do. I finish steps eight and nine and I find freedom. Freedom from my addiction, that's guaranteed in the big book, page 84, placed in a position of neutrality, but only sustaining the freedom in my unmanageability if, because I'm, I'm not cured. I have a daily reprieve based on the incorporation of 10, 11, and 12. This is the commitment to forgiveness an attitude, a decision to have an attitude. Again, the key that makes us humans, that makes us specifically human is that we have free will. I can choose to go left. I can choose to go right. I can choose to be here or not. I can choose to listen or not. I can choose to be open to what's being said or not. I have total free will. It's about my attitude toward reality toward my day, toward myself, toward other people, toward this workshop. What's my attitude? That stance. Bill uses that term on page 55. With this attitude, you cannot fail. Think honestly, search diligently, search fearlessly. What's the attitude? I see it as a, in a sail metaphor, a boat, sailing boat attitude. The attitude of the sail determines whether or not it picks up the wind, the power of the breath, the power of the spirit, the power to empower the movement of the boat forward. The attitude of the sail catches the spirit to empower my actions. I can name the harm that I've done, and I can accept responsibility in step eight. 
for the harm that I've done. The harm is not my behavior. The harm is the impact of my behavior. Lots of people get that confused if they knew it in the first place. The harm is not my behavior. The harm is the impact of my behavior on others and to accept responsibility for my behavior and the impact on others brings us then <clears throat> to another decision to take action. Attitude and action. That's the summary of forgiveness from my standpoint. An attitude to release and an action to effect that release. First in step nine is to change your behavior. No point in apologizing for your infidelity if in fact you are not going to stop your infidelity if that's in fact what's required here. The first action is to change that behavior. Amend means amend my behavior. Not my thoughts, not my feelings, although that's all part of the, the program, your personal program of growing to be a decent human being, changing your thoughts and changing your feelings. But as I mentioned before, that's a lot easier when you change your behavior. And the real component part, the essential part of step nine is, in fact, to repair the damage to the best of our ability. I'll be doing many workshops on steps eight and nine so people can get clear based on my understanding and my experience with it. I'm free. I am free of the burdens of my mischief. I'll be kind from the past. Forgiveness is not to condone or forget, or tolerate, or ignore, or approve, or excuse, or minimize. Please hear the words. There's so much misinformation and misconception as to what forgiveness is. It is not to pardon. I don't have that power. It is not to die, to deny, to attempt to forget. It is not to absolve. It certainly isn't necessarily to reconcile. These are people that you may not want a relationship with or to endanger yourself again or surrender justice. I worked with a young man who put his father in prison, loved his father, continues to love his father, but he wasn't going to allow his daughters to think that what grandpa did in his molestation of those daughters was acceptable. He put his father at age 66 in prison for eight years. Still loves his father, still visits his father, but doesn't allow his father to visit his granddaughters. We don't give up justice necessarily. Forgiveness is a decision to not retaliate or exact revenge or seek compensation or judge. That's not the point of forgiveness. That's not our job. 
The purpose of forgiveness is a decision to release them. Just opening the heart and opening the mind and opening the soul as I opened up my hand to release them. In that process, we are released. In that process, we find freedom. But it's a process. It takes time. It takes work. It probably takes some guidance from other persons. It did in my case. I had a therapist that I was dealing with. I had a spiritual director I was dealing with. I had a sponsor who guided me on a daily basis. And I had a step guide who guided me through the steps, brought me to conclusion with regard to my ninth step, held me accountable for finishing those. When I would come and say, I haven't done any work on my ninth step, he would say, well, what's the problem? I said, I, well, I'm really busy now and, and um, <clears throat> I'm willing, I'm willing, but I just haven't found the time. And he said, Herb, willingness without action is fantasy. There's a remarkable term. You want to confront yourself. Don't tell me how willing you are unless your feet are moving. No, he's a hard ass. But that kind of accountability allowed me to find the energy and the willingness to complete those amends. Yes, to complete those amends. Stories for a different day, or maybe today, if in fact some Questions come up surrounding that process in terms of particular ways of making amends to parents, making amends to dead people, making amends to people that you shouldn't see, making amends to people that you can't find. I have completed my amends, living and dead. I have completed my amends to anybody that I'm in conscious awareness that I might have harmed might have harmed and I have the freedom that comes from that so that's the introduction of Fred Luskin are you with us at this point I am here wonderful wonderful thank you I, uh, want you to, uh, we spent a little time introducing myself at the beginning, and as you've, whatever part you saw, I've uh, given an overview from my own experience of the 12-step process. Now I'd like you to introduce yourself and um, continue on uh, wherever you would like to take us. <laughs> Thank you, Herb. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I don't think there is intrinsically much disagreement between Herb and I about forgiveness. Um, it's simply we're trained differently. So I made a conscious decision um, decades ago to emphasize psychological principles for how to do forgiveness, while I see Herb emphasizes spiritual principles. Um, 
I have to believe at some level they're basically the same. Um, I, I don't like. <laughs> it's like all the different paths to God. If they don't lead in the same direction, then we're in real trouble. <laughs> it's like <laughs> things are true or they're not true. And it's just our little pea brains that argue about our tiny little distinctions of true and stuff. Um, I'll tell you why. When we started the Forgiveness Project, one of the reasons we did not put a spiritual arm to it was because of how disagreeable religious people were. Um, I mean, it was it was a little shocking to see how um, I'm going to say a religiously many of them acted. But um, we originally were thinking of having a secular um, approach and a more religious approach. And the problem with the religious approach is that everybody wanted their own and could not countenance or tolerate other people's. So the Buddhists wanted it about Buddha, the Christians wanted it about Jesus. It was, it was kind of weird. We even brought Catholics and Protestants together and I, I couldn't find Jesus within a hundred thousand miles of where they were. But, um, so we dropped the religious arm and focused on a non-denominational, secular, psychologically-based and, and research-derived method of forgiveness. The heart of it, like any other method of forgiveness, is based around the serenity prayer. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the handful of this world's wisdom statements. Nobody owns it. It just is. It's just true. Um, you know, you got to decide what to fight and you decide what to accept. And you got to make peace with your decisions and the realities of life. Or, you know, the words from the gambler, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. Right. But that's the heart of forgiveness. I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, you can or I can make it as complicated as we want. And we can make our lives incredibly complicated. And we can find all sorts of reasons to make ourselves unhappy. But the basic value of the serenity prayer is if you practice it, you're happier. So it has immediate and tangible feedback. And that's what wisdom statements are about. They're about reducing your suffering. Because they're true. You know, they're not true just in 2022. And they're not true just for Christians. And they're not true just for whatever. They're just true. You know, they tap into the way, uh, the way it is. And so does forgiveness. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the word that we give to letting go of our own generated hostility, contempt, bitterness, self-pity, 
that we create around our interpretation of our own lives. So when you create a bitter interpretation of your life, of any form of it, forgiveness is your releasing your interpretation. Has no impact on reality, but it has impact on your perception. And forgiveness generally is going from a perception of victimhood to a perception of um, surviving, thriving, healing, whatever you want. But it's all within your consciousness. That the only place unforgiveness and forgiveness exists is between your ears or between your tribe's ears. We make it all up and we let it all go. And we can keep it as long as we want. I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong, per se, with unforgiveness. The, the data is that both forgiveness and unforgiveness are hardwired into our systems. So the template is there. We choose when and how to use it, but it's there. The, the, the question is, what are the skillful uses of forgiveness and unforgiveness? And how do we use them in ways that protect us and lead to our reduced suffering and maybe even healing of ourselves and other people from both personal and intergenerational and, and tribal wounding? But I don't believe you could really be the follower of any real religion and defend unforgiveness. And I think that's one of the defining characteristics of real religion. Is it, it literally tells us to get out of our own way and stop rejecting our lives and stop blaming for how we experience that life. And that's what forgiveness asks of us. And so to me, I mean, I, you know, I've been at this a long time. Like I've sat and listened to people who tell the audience that you forgive through Jesus. And I've had other people teach that, you know, that there's Buddhist practices and then Herb with the 12 steps and me with a secular and there's other secular approaches. They all have value. They're all, I mean, they're all useful. There's no, there's no one wisdom. I mean, there, there are processes. You know, the sad thing with our contemporary culture and its emphasis on diversity is I don't, I don't think anybody really believes it. <laughs> right you know like the world is incredibly diverse and there are so many different ways to do everything and we want only our path so we put diversity to about this big 
when it's actually enormous. Like we all have a little taste of the world's wisdom. And we all live as best we can that wisdom. And I can't, I mean, I don't know how forcefully I can say this. I've been at this for about almost 30 years. It's very hard to be a really happy person if you don't know how to forgive. You're going to just trip over your bitterness all over the place. And you're going to be full of blame. So you won't be able to recognize the source. And that's the sadness. You won't be able to recognize that you're the source. And so you can't cure what you don't know where it exists from. And it's sad because the world drives itself crazy because of that and harms so many people, so many people, so much harm we create, we create because we don't know how to get rid of our bitterness. So we pay it forward. I mean, I, you know, I've done couples counseling and you can't believe what people will say to each other in couples counseling. And I, me being a sarcastic New Yorker, I've sat with warring couples and thought, okay, so this is the person that they have pledged to do their best to for a lifetime. What do they look like with the person they don't make that pledge to? <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to even fathom, but they're shouting and blaming and screaming and arguing and calling names and and this is a person that they once, you know, said, I do. And yet they have the, I'm going to say the technical term called chutzpah, to blame it on somebody else. That they couldn't behave during a marriage, so it has to be somebody else's fault. That's one of the great entertaining non-forgiveness, like, stupidities. Doesn't mean you're going to get along with everybody, but at least take responsibility for the fact that you didn't either didn't choose wisely or didn't know how to get along with them or didn't understand who you were with and it didn't work. But the blame, the blame, the blame and the bitterness are shocking. And then they, then people carry it forward another 10 years. And God forbid anybody who gets in front of them after the lousy ex, they have to pay the dues. So this is what unforgiveness does. It like pollutes our insides. So I took a very simple psychological um, approach. I was a, a researcher at the Stanford University School of Medicine um, doing research on preventive cardiology. And so basically used all of the practices of um, behavioral medicine 
to teach people to forgive. Like it's it's not complicated. I mean, I I, I wish it were complicated. It would give us more of an excuse. But it's not complicated. We just don't want to. You know, there's another, there's a handful of like of wisdom things like the serenity prayer. Another one is mostly we do what we want to do. That's another wisdom truth. You do what you want. So if you don't want to forgive, don't forgive. Just don't blame anybody else. Most of us do what we want most of the time. So what I tried to do with a small team of people was how do you secularize and how do you um, translate really simple psychological tenets so that they go towards forgiveness? You know, we didn't invent anything. First of all, there's nothing to invent. Yogis figured out how to be happy thousands of years ago. We haven't perfected that any further. The Buddhas figured out thousands of years ago. Jesus figured it out thousands of years ago. There's nothing new. There's nothing new. You just have to find the wisdom and use it. And you have to choose to look for it. And then you have to choose to practice. That's the pain in the ass part. That is the pain in the ass part because you have to practice. I had I have a friend who's also a, a psychotherapist. Um, and I remember telling him about somebody. Maybe it was a client of mine. I have no idea. But I was talking about this person whose life was a mess. And I was feeling sorry for them because their life was a mess. I mean, you just, you wouldn't want this life. <laughs> and so he looked at me and he said, Fred, just think of how many bad choices it took for them to end up where they are. And he was right. We have so much choice, we don't realize it. Like that, that serenity prayer that Herb showed, that's not just a, an overall path. That's a moment-to-moment decision guider. Like right here, right now. Like if I'm mad at somebody, right now. Is there anything I can do that's useful? Right now. Well, well throwing a plate, <laughs> is that useful? Screaming, yelling, feeling sorry for myself, are those useful? Probably not. So that means I probably should go towards the acceptance end right now. It's a practice. It's a moment-to-moment practice to choose serenity, to choose peace. But you have to practice. Because what my friend has reminded me on, on a number of occasions, is how regularly day-to-day we choose the opposite. 
Let me choose anger. Let me choose resentment. Let me choose self-pity. Let me choose judgment. And, and those are all legitimate choices. But if you choose anger 45 times a day and you end up tired at the end of the day, that's a good reason why. So we did four, four, four basic patternings that you can use to become more forgiving. They're really simple. One of them is simple gratitude. If you don't have gratitude, it's very hard to forgive because it's all you see is what's wrong. Very simple. Very, 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 very simple. If you focus on what's wrong, you find what's wrong. This is not rocket science. If you, I mean, if you look outside and you say it's too hot, too cold, too rainy, too cloudy, you're not going to be happy. And you're not going to forgive Mother Nature for not giving you the weather you wanted. It's the same stuff. I remember once teaching at Esalen, and um, I think what we did, I can't remember exactly, but I think we tried, how do you make yourself unhappy? By staring at the Pacific Ocean at, at Esalen, which is gorgeous. So one of the ways you make yourself unhappy is by saying, it's nice out here, but it's a little chilly. So right there, you're making yourself unhappy, and you probably think it's the cold's fault. Or it's beautiful, but I prefer when the water is blue, not green. Okay, so another unhappiness. I was here last year, and there wasn't the fog. I don't like it with fog. These are all unhappy choices. And we think it's outside of us. Well, it's the same thing if you think your brother-in-law is the one that's ruining your view now. Same thing. It's, um, it can be very frustrating when you start taking responsibility for the content of your mind and asking yourself a few points during the day, is that content of my mind helping me or not? It's, it's a present-centered question right now. So right now, am I creating unforgiveness? The weather's not good enough. My brother-in-law is not good enough. The country's not good enough. Donald Trump's not good enough. Whatever. That's, that's our creation. It's practice. So what we decided was we're going to be so simple. First of all, I think that's all we understood. Um, we weren't the sharpest knives in Stanford's drawer. 
Um, and I mean that seriously. I, I've sat around with some really bright people and it ain't me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm useful for what I do, but not. <laughs> so we, we decided we're going to do a few things. One is we're going to remind people that if you gratitude, if you have gratitude, it's easier to accept the things that didn't go well. So simple, so duh, so pathetically easy, and yet very few people do it. So if you complain about one thing, like you had a crappy mother, spend an equal amount of time saying something nice about something in your life, and you'll be more forgiving. Write that, just that. Like, I don't see my grandkids enough. There's a nice complaint. But it's beautiful outside. Okay. So you're, not, you're going to be more forgiving. Right there. Life is yin and yang. Up and down. If you wake up in the morning and you're pissed off at what somebody did to you yesterday, remind yourself that you woke up in the morning. And one day you won't. I'm serious. It's this simple. And then you see the quality of your own mind. You see how much you make your misery. So let me let me let me lead through a simple meditation on gratitude because these are so foundational to forgive. They're so simple, but let me I'm going to I'm I'm just going to I'm going to lead a couple simple practices. Let me just lead a very simple meditation. It's I do this or a variant just about any time I speak, but if you'd all please like be willing to quiet down, push back for a minute. I'm going to ask you to put your phones away if you want to actually meditate. If you don't want to meditate, keep your phone right there because you'll be so distracted you won't be able to meditate. So just put your phone away somewhere, please. And then just be willing to close your eyes for a moment. Very, the, the simplest of meditation practices. Just please close your eyes. And relax your breathing. The, the key piece of imagery is when it comes from a quiet, peaceful place in you. So you want your eyes closed, you want your shoulders relaxed, because otherwise it's very hard to breathe deeply. If your shoulders are tight, it's very, very hard to breathe deeply. 
very, very hard. You want soft, gentle, relaxed shoulders. And then when you inhale, you want your belly to expand. And when you exhale, you want your belly to contract. Soft shoulders, gentle breathing. That's how you relax. And you need to be relaxed to be able to do real imagery. And you need to be safe enough so that when you inhale, your belly actually expands. You need to be safe enough so that when you inhale, your belly gets bigger. And your chest and shoulders do not move much. It's belly breathing. You breathe in, your belly gets bigger. You breathe out, your belly contracts. And then just ask yourself a simple question. In the last like 36 hours, who's been kind to me? You just want to look at the last day and a half, two days. And you want to try to like just slow your life down enough. So you could just ask a simple question. Where, where did kindness show? Anybody say nice things, help me in any way, care for me, tolerate me, whatever. Just look for kindness. And then pick one experience of kindness, just one of those things. And inside of you, almost from your own heart, just say thank you for that. Like from your heart, say thank you for that kindness.
And then after, like from your own heart, saying thank you, just please let that go. Let the image go. Let whatever it is go. And just take a breath and very gently allow your eyes to open. So gratitude kind of resets your compass. So you can start, you have a chance then, a chance to see your life clearly. Until then, we are all basically full of shit. I don't I don't I don't say that lightly. But we misperceive life all over the place for the worst, for threats, because we're wired that way. We are marked misperceiving mechanisms. And we see danger and problems because we're wired to. We hold on to grudges, we exaggerate offenses. And we're very fearful because that's designed to keep us alive. But it's not designed to make you a good witness to your life. But a three-minute imagery practice like that on gratitude gives you a moment to see your life more accurately. which is there may have been harm done to you. And there were certainly people who were cruel. And I'm sure there are people in the world somewhere who don't like your tribe or religious affiliation or something about your past because humans do that to each other throughout history. And all that may be true and you have so much to be thankful for. So what I operate under the premise is that any long-term grudge is a distortion of reality. That doesn't mean that two weeks after somebody comes in and shoots out somebody's family, that I'm going in there and telling them to enjoy the sunrise because that would be ridiculous and cruel. But any long-term accounting of your life, which is your general frame, if it doesn't have a lot of gratitude, you're simply not seeing things clearly. More, Probably more basically, you're not even looking accurately for your life. So forgiveness starts with gratitude. So you have at least a chance of seeing things accurately. You know, imagine if somebody said to you, so how's your day going? And you said, well, pretty good. I woke up in a bed, had food in the refrigerator, running water. I'm probably among the richest 1% of people 
ever to have lived on this planet. But not bad, not a bad day. You then have a chance to see things clearly. But since we are basically dishonesty machines, it's very hard, very hard. And we complain together. So forgiveness starts with gratitude, trying to see things accurately at all. Because most of us, when we're unforgiving, are saying um, it's not fair. It's just not fair that they didn't love me or they didn't treat me right or they didn't help me or they screwed up or I screwed up. And that there's some truth to that. It's not that this is wrong. But imagine if you said, and I have three square meals a day and I have a job. And I live in a country with voting. So when we're looking at fair, I'm way more on the side of have too much than too little. So if I'm interested in fair, I better start thinking pretty strongly of giving back and having less if fair is my goal. So why don't I'll give up half my house because I really care about fairness. I never hear that. I never hear anybody say, you know, in my quest for fairness, I'm going to give up my second home that I have because I'm so concerned about fairness, or I'm going to give up a third of my food because I know I really overeat and there's people who are starving. So because fair is what's so important to me, I'm going to go give it to the shelter. I never hear that interest in fair. I only hear fair for what we didn't get. So that's how badly we misperceive things. We're grudges waiting for a, an object. So yeah, we have to start offering kindness to what we have. We have to, I mean, not have to, if you wanna be happy, if you wanna see things clearly. I'm gonna find um, that, that it's a little bit, um, there's the poem otherwise by Jane Kenyon. I just want to find it. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful poem. It's what I was just saying. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peaches. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood. All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. 
I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. That's a wisdom teaching, a profound wisdom teaching. There's a backstory to this that makes it even more profound. Jane Kenyon was married to another well-known poet. And um, she met him as his graduate student. And they had a really just a deep love for about 20 years. She met him in her 20s. In her late 40s, she wrote the first um, like version of this poem. And it, it, the last line was, one day I know it may be otherwise. And it wasn't finished. And then she got cancer. And um, she was dying. And she and her husband were editing her poems. And they got to this one and they changed the last line from one day it may be otherwise to one day it will be otherwise. And she died and he's been without her for over 20 years. Uh, he wrote an article for the New Yorker a couple of years ago on just how shocking it was because they spent their time wondering about how she was gonna have to take care of him because he was 20 years older. And she ended up dying, and he's been without her now for 20-plus years. So we look at life so ignorantly, and out of that springs so much bitterness. You know, that we're going to live, we don't know how long. And that we can go through this life and not recognize the gifts of it not profoundly talk about them and think about them and appreciate them and recognize that that lack of appreciation has so much to do with why we're bitter or don't let go of stuff. I mean, if you, if any of us, I mean, this is, these are the same wisdom teachings that they're forever, they're eternal, they're, they're cross-cultural, they're trans-age. It's a beautiful world if you want to see it. It's also a horrible world. It's both. Focus on whatever you want, but know that what you focus on will be what your experience is. And it's nobody's fault if you focus on what's wrong. And that's, that's, that's where gratitude is so important. I'm going to give you just a thought experiment. Just stop for one more moment. This is not eyes closed. This is just a thought experiment. But I'm asking you to stop and sit still for a moment.
and eyes open, just take a breath or two. Just, just allow your belly to relax and expand, please. And then just just ask yourself, like, you know, when I woke up this morning, if I were really attuned, what were three things that would be really easy to be thankful for if I taught myself to pay attention? Simple things. But you want to look at your life, not in abstract this is not abstract. This is your particular life. You woke up in the morning. What were three things that would be really easy to say thank you for? And the only thing I want you to do is see if you can bring that feeling of thank you into your heart. Like, thank you for, I'm glad I woke up this morning. I wasn't ready to, to depart. So thank you. And thank you maybe for the fact that I'm healthy enough to breathe. Thank you. Well, thank you for the fact that I don't have to worry about food. Thank you. But you want to try to feel it in your heart. You want to. You want to have it quiet you. You want the thank you to make a difference. And then you just want to let that go and you want to bring your attention back to me or whatever. But you want to say thank you and you want to feel the thank you. So I'm going to talk for a couple more moments then. I know it's time for you all to have a break, so I'm going to stop for a few minutes. But where this gets really profound for forgiveness is, and why you can, like I, I've been teaching forgiveness for a long time. And human beings are incredibly selfish and cruel. And so there's no end to terrible things that people endure. Please do not think this is like a Pollyanna, you know, is all you have to do is look and beauty's everywhere and la di la di da. There's a lot of horror and there's horrible misapplication of resources and staggering selfishness and cruelty. And, and so this is not a minimization practice. It's an acceptance practice and a wisdom practice. 
What do you do in a world with incredible cruelty and incredible beauty? It's a tough question. You can't ignore the ugliness because then you just become indifferent. But if you get lost in the ugliness, then you become ugly, which is what we see now all over the United States like horrible political righteousness and bitterness and just demonizing of people who disagree because everybody sees ugliness. They become ugly. There is incredible beauty in this world also. Incredible beauty. You know, go, go watch a hospice nurse. Go watch a preschool teacher. Go watch all the people taking care of aged parents and sick kids, and you'll see incredible beauty. So the world's way, way more complicated than we can reduce it to. But you want to go from grievance to peace. That, that's the goal. And um, one is see more beauty. See more goodness. You got to look for it. It's there. You don't have to invent it. You just have to find it. But you have to look. We're all a little bit like the people I worked with um, at Esalen. We're all staring at the Pacific Ocean and finding what's wrong. We are, all of us. I mean, it's part of our nature. But the other piece that we need to be very careful with, besides what we see, is what we talk about. So nobody else controls what comes out of your mouth. Nobody. And so we, if we want to be more forgiving and we want to be happier people, we have to complain a little less. There's no way around that. And that that's, it's not optional. I mean, it's optional if you want to do it. It's not optional if you want to become a happier, more forgiving person. You have to complain less. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes care. So the first step is notice. Notice the physical beauty of nature. Notice the goodness that other people have done to you. Walk into Safeway and notice all the fruit and vegetables from all over the world. 
and then try to complain because somebody wasn't nice enough to you, you'll feel like an idiot. Oh, the world wasn't good enough to you by giving you Safeway around the corner? You expect more? Like, that's how we act. You know, there's still a billion people who go to bed without any food, but we can walk into Safeway and complain. So the first thing is to notice. The second is to start monitoring your speech. Do you need to be nasty right now? It's always a question of right now. Do you need to be nasty right now? Now, what that means is, and it's a tough question, do you need to complain right now? Anyway, take, please take about a 10-minute break. Um, what I'd like you to do actually is not check messages on technology. Actually take a break, move away from the screen. Probably even be good if you could go outside for a few minutes. You want to clear your head from the this. This is not natural to be connecting this way. Thanks, Fred, very much. And yes, I will rely on Rainy to be our timekeeper, more or less. And thank you so much, uh, Fred. We'll all uh, take a break, as he said.
Fred had mentioned about monitoring our speech, which is something the Al-Anons have made a science of and have uh, some kind of formula for challenging our consciousness in that area. Were the questions like, why am I talking? Is what I'm about to say true? Is this the right time to say it? Am I the person to be saying it? What's my motive? What's the intended outcome from my standpoint? What am I expecting or hoping for as a result of my talking? There may be other things I've not actually memorized it, but I was very impressed with the, the sort of the list of litmus tests for challenging our own consciousness in that area. So if anybody has words that can contribute to that list, I'm probably going to make a list of it and publish it. Because <clears throat> it's, so, it's so powerful. I know when I <clears throat> applied that to my conversation with my wife, <laughs> it uh, reduced my conversation about 50%. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, wait, there's Fred, all right. Fred, we're, we're back, we're kind of warming it up here. And um, so I'd like you uh, to continue. And at some point, I'd love to have some audience participation in terms of their questions or comments or experiences based on whatever I and you said. But you go ahead, Fred, please. Well, hi again. Um, well, in the, the psychological world that I live in, I'm really surprised that there's so little um, focus on what we talk about and how much we complain. Um, it's very strange to me. It's, it's a very strange thing that, like the Dalai Lama in his book, The Art of Happiness, says pretty clearly, if you want to be happy, Practice the conditions that lead to happiness. If you want to be unhappy, practice the conditions that lead to unhappiness. So one of the prime conditions that leads to unhappiness is complaining. And unforgiveness is simply complaining about your life. It's not that that's wrong, it's just inefficient for happiness. It's not, I mean, there's no right or wrong in this. There might be skillful, but there's not necessarily right or wrong. But what, what I, I mean, I, you know, I have two therapy licenses. I got, I can't even imagine why, but, um, Back in the day, I got a master's, so I have a marriage and family therapy license from years ago. And then I have got a PhD, and then I have a, you know, a psychologist license. So I have 
you know, like thousands and thousands of practice hours. And nobody ever suggested that I simply tell my clients, stop complaining. <laughs> I mean, think about how much money the world would save if somebody just said, please shut up. <laughs> That's politically incorrect, of course. <laughs> I mean, just stop complaining so much. Stop. Shut up. Stop. It's enough. Let's talk about something else. Mm. You could save years of therapy. You could save a fortune. And you'd probably lower the blood pressure of a huge percentage of the population. So one of the things that we figured out with forgiveness training was you need to stop talking negatively about your own life. Yeah. Right? Fred, would it be relevant for you to introduce the, some of the work that's being done on positive psychology in this area? This is all positive psychology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we were, <laughs> I mean, back 25 years ago when psycho positive psychology was emerging, yeah. We were one of the one or two groups doing forgiveness as part of positive psychology. Yeah. But, but it's deeper than not just complaining. It's how, how do you use like the precious gift of speech to stop hurting yourself and start helping yourself? Like this is... This, not the lips, but the brilliance of speech is one of the apogees of evolution. All the intelligence of the universe gives us this opportunity to talk. And we spend 80% of our talking time complaining. So of course you're unhappy. We're all, I mean, it's, it's a chronic biological thing to try to make ourselves safe. And I'm not saying never complain because you can't. I mean, you just can't and you shouldn't. But unforgiveness is an endless complaint about something you couldn't change. <laughs> That's all it is. Right. Don't try to dress it up and make it prettier. It's just you or I endlessly complaining about something we couldn't change. And instead of accepting and making peace with it, we figure it's smarter to complain. And people can do that for lifetimes. They can build family structures around it. Groups can hate each other for decades. And they, all they're doing is complaining. So, but it's the, the, the speech piece that I'm trying to focus on, which is, do you need to say something unkind now? Do you need to complain about your ex-husband this moment? That's the most pressing forgiveness question. I have to tell you, in all the years that I've been doing this, 
It's women who had crappy ex-husbands who come in and need to forgive them or want to forgive them or want to tell everybody how crappy the ex-husband was. But that is the biggest forgiveness issue. I'm not even sure there's anything in second place. Um, that's not just that men are worse. It's that women go to more self-help things. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, not, a, it's not a fair sample. When they did a statistic on um, who goes to forgiveness training, I think it's about 85% women. Uh, Fred, my wife ran the uh, retreat center that we talk about at the beginning of this for 20 years, and she indicated that over the 50-year history up to that point, the attendees were 80% women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, women, men don't go to doctors, you know what I mean? It's just like, but anyway... If you could just, I mean, I'm trying to give you as simple practices as I can. Be thankful for beauty and kindness and goodness and be so a little more careful with what comes out of your mouth. Do you have to complain about this unkindness right now? Right now. It's always right now. Part of the challenge there, I think, Fred, would be challenging your own attitude. That is, the lenses through which you're looking. I, I've been gifted with positive attitude from a long time ago, but I've fostered it also. And I'm seeing that, especially with my some exposure to the positive psychology movement, that that's really the source of uh, changing the words or changing the actions is the, the attitude, the lenses through which I'm looking is to practice looking at things from a positive uh, uh, gratitude attitude rather than practicing looking at it from a negative complaining attitude. Yeah. yeah. The, the caveat, though, is... Um, you have to complain. <laughs> you just want to make it skillful, which means complain close to the time that the offense happened. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, and you made a real point, and, and I changed the serenity prayer to reflect that, is so many people think that they use the word control when they're not really aware that they have very little control. So I've used the word in the serenity prayer, influence. What can I influence? What can't I influence? It's, it's startling when you actually begin to look at that. It, it does bring serenity because it brings realistic uh, evaluation. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me give everybody a very simple practice because um, in your mind, just like think of somebody who offended you or pissed you off or frustrated you and no vocalizing because you're only there with you. And it looks pretty stupid when, you know, you're like yelling at somebody and there's nobody else there. Um, but in your mind, just tell somebody 
like what they did that you didn't like. Like in your mind, you know, like if you got bad service in a restaurant, like a simple benign thing. In your mind, tell them that that was crappy service. But here's the crucial addition. Before you're done with your little complaint thing, just in your mind say, and I'm grateful for. So if um, like you're talking to a friend about how another person harmed you, don't just talk about the harm. Say, and I'm so grateful that I have you to share it with. Mm. Or if you're arguing with your partner and you want to have a good relationship with them, tell them how bad they were and I'm grateful that we have the kind of relationship where we can do this. Or if you can't think of anything nice to say in the present moment, you say something unpleasant. And then in your mind, you say, and I'm grateful that I have a chance to work on it and grow. Or. I'm grateful that I'm healthy and smart enough to be able to do something. Or I'm grateful that I'm breathing. But you, you want to learn not to just have complaints without reminding yourself that the world is much, much more complex than that. So literally balancing it. I'm suggesting you balance it for your nervous system because when you simply send in jolts of adrenaline, which is what happens whenever you complain about anything, adrenaline forces your attention on the problem and limits the capacity of your mind to think deeply. There's nothing wrong inherently with noticing what's wrong. Otherwise, you'll walk out in traffic. But you want to notice what's wrong and not become addicted to it. And that's what the long-term grievance is. It's an addiction to what noticing what's wrong. But the answer can be so simple. Like, right, you know, like right now, I'm in Northern California. It's like 75 degrees. It's gorgeous. So whatever has happened in the past, it's gorgeous right now. Yeah. So what would be the value of complaining about the past right now? Unless there's a reason. And then I still remind myself. Yeah. So here's one more practice on this. And then I'm going to go to something else. The habit that you want to try to get into is called saying thank you. You want to develop the habit of noticing the goodness and kindness that's sent your way. If you can do that, you will become a more forgiving person. So what I'd like you to do is, again, since we're not in a room and it's hard to bring people together, I'd like you to think of the last time 
that somebody did something good for you that you didn't say thank you. I'm sure it was in the last hour, but let's just look. No, I'm serious. Maybe it was the last day. Because we don't say thank you. But thank you is a decision that opens the heart, aligns the brain and the heart together so that your thinking is deeper. And when it becomes a pattern, you're no longer just focused on how the world hasn't given you what you wanted. It's called, you don't even have to say it out loud sometimes. Just thank you. You know, if you're, if you're in an airport and the, the bus driver for the, like the rental car company takes your luggage, make sure you say thank you. When somebody takes your order at a restaurant, say thank you. If your partner returns the kids with all, both hands and you know both feet, say thank you. That practice encapsulates how you become, on the view, a more forgiving human being because you will then see things more clearly. And the thank you is the reminder to speak it. Then you want to go one step deeper. You want to recognize the goodness in other people. Because you and I have spent our whole lives recognizing what's wrong with other people. So let me give an example. I have, a, I have an arthritic hip. So, I mean, I limp. It's not, nothing terrible. I was in a hotel a couple of years ago and um, some like 30 year old young man like saw me down the hall and um, held the door open for me on the elevator. I mean, but held it open for 75, 80 feet. So he saw it and anticipated it. I got in the elevator. I said, you know, it was just a guess. I said, boy, you must have had good parents. And he said, I did. And I said, well, they would be quite proud of you because you saw me. I didn't ask you to hold the elevator. You did it. If you want to become more forgiving, this is the piece that you have to cultivate. Because your nervous system and your culture will teach you to find what's wrong all over the place, all over the place. You need to teach yourself to find what's good and honor it and share it. That's your contribution to your own well-being, but it creates a forgiving world. Because when you get in the habit of noticing when somebody holds an elevator open or gives you good service or whatever it is, and you say thank you, then you have a built-in balance to when they don't do what you want. You're not walking around lopsided all the time with 80 grudges a day, which is what many of us do. You keep yourself more in balance. 
So let me give you one more guided imagery practice, and then I'm going to move on to something different. If you'd all please close your eyes for a moment. And again, just two, two, clo- two slow, deep breaths, gentle. And then I just want you to ask yourself a very simple question. When was a time and with whom where somebody was nicer to you than you were to them? Where were you given more love than you gave? Where were you given more kindness? Where were you surprised by somebody's goodness? If that's hard for you, it will be giving you a sign of what you see and what you perceive. If it's easy for you, it should provide you some humility. And then just notice that with thanks. So an easy example is, If you're in a bad mood and you say something to somebody that's not skillful or not kind, and they give you a pass on that, where they're kinder to you than you are to them. Or if you make a mistake and you screw up and somebody says, oh, no big deal. That's kinder to you than you are to them. And you just want to notice one. And just again, say thank you. And then just take a breath and allow your eyes to open. So my point in all this is that without these kind of practices and it's being telescoped because of time limitations, you can't really see clearly enough to forgive easily because we're all too busy tuning into grievance central and we don't have clarity of mind. So here's the takeaway from this part. Whenever you feel love or deep peace or kindness, whenever you feel that in you, that's the part of you that already knows how to forgive. (laughs) 
what you're going back to is a place in you. It has nothing to do with the past and it has nothing to do with who has hurt you. You're finding the place in you that is at peace with your own life. That's what we're looking for. So when you're at peace, you recognize that things come and go. Parts of your life were painful, parts weren't. Some met your expectations, some exceeded your expectations, and some just flat out sucked. But you don't have to be disturbed by it. This is, I'm going to say why this is a piece, but why we or me, when I do individual work, it doesn't take that long. It's not like it doesn't take years or months to remind people that inside of them is a place of peace that can be addressed psycho, psychophysiologically. And then from that place of peace, we can talk to ourselves of what it looks like to have made that wisdom decision to, you know, not fight City Hall <laughs> and make peace where we can. Like, this is our ongoing practice. There are three other qualities that we teach to get people to forgive. The second one, I just, I hinted at a little bit with using your mouth's talk. We teach people to change the story we tell from victim to something else. You can't do any of this if you're just in full-fledged adrenalized. I have 20 years of practice of hating my mother. You can't do anything. So the first is always calm down and see there's a lot more to this world than just this small, ugly piece that you're describing. The second is, well, now what do I report to the world? What do I talk about? The grievance story is about the past. The forgiveness story is about the present and the future. You want to shift from a grievance story to a forgiveness story. And again, nobody controls the story but you. So let me give you a simple practice. Um, since I, we, we don't have breakout rooms um, in this Zoom, um, which I, I, I would have used, um, I'd like you all to like either take out a piece of paper or use some technology 
Um, and think of a grievance. Like think of, uh, again, it doesn't matter anything that harmed you or you didn't like or didn't meet your lofty standards for behavior or whatever. And write down, like, let's say three things about that past that were not okay by you. Again, none of the content doesn't matter, the process matters. So the grievance story is our way of talking to ourself and the world about what happened. It's not necessarily accurate, but it's a way of describing to ourselves why we are not at peace with our life. And it, it serves a function. It usually serves the function of making us not responsible. So the grievance story is usually, here's what happened in the past that makes it understandable that I'm not happy and at peace in the present. It's my way of explaining why it is I get a pass from having, you know, a positive experience now. I'm giving myself a pass. Again, short term, that's invaluable. So if you do have a terrible ex and they're terrible in the first year after a breakup, it makes sense to have a story like that. And in fact, it's very healthy and adaptive. The problem is when that story doesn't move on. That's the problem with all this. So you can say, I married a bum. You know, they were terrible with the kids. They were terrible with me. I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. Blah, blah, blah. That's a wonderful story for a year. But then there comes a period of time when the person is not your problem, but your story. Your story becomes your prison. Because the story is about the past. 
And it's a story about your helplessness. That's all it is. It's a helpless engendering story so that you don't have to feel bad, maybe, about why it is you haven't recovered. It's their fault. It's my group's fault. It's this fault. It's whatever. That's the reason why I'm not at peace. So it gives you a escape hatch. But it also keeps you stuck in whatever year the story took place. And it disempowers us. That's what's really so painful about it. It just disempowers us. So what you want to do is stop telling that story. And find a new story. Forgiveness is in the story. The way you know whether or not you have forgiven is whether the story has changed. That's it. There's no objective, you know, evidence. Not like you take a blood test and, you know, you have forgiveness or you don't have forgiveness. It's the story. So the forgiveness story is about you and not about the events or the past. It's about you. It's about present or future, not past. And it's about responsibility for self, not blame. So I could say that, and it's true, I had a long-term, really problematic relationship with my mother-in-law. I mean, that was, it was really difficult and was probably the most difficult part of my marriage. I had a good marriage, but I'm just saying, <laughs> mom-in-law, biggest challenge. Part of it was because I talked about mom-in-law. I didn't talk about what I could do. I talked about what she couldn't do. And I focused on what she did wrong in the past, even if that past was two weeks ago. It was like, that was my focus. And I had no efficacy beliefs about myself. Which meant I'm helpless because she's awful. So that's a victim helpless story. Part of the Stanford Forgiveness Project emerged because I learned to tell a different story about her. So where it shifted was I started asking myself, well, how are you going to grow since she's not changing, how are you going to grow? And what kind of future do you want, not what kind of past do you not want? And whose fault is it that you're unhappy with your mother-in-law? I mean, whose responsibility is that? 
So I crafted a different story. That's the, that's the power of forgiveness. Is that you no longer have to be trapped by a story that doesn't work for you. And that's actually all you're doing when you forgive. Is you're allowing yourself to stop a vice-like grip on a bad story. You relax your body enough to open so a new story can come in. And that story can be hopeful for the future. And grateful, it emerges out of gratitude for the present instead of trapping you in complaining about the past. This is, I told you this is not complicated. I mean, we'd spend 30 years thinking about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm just saying we have a clear a clarity that may not exist, but it's not complicated. It's you stop complaining about the past so much and you start appreciating the present more. And then your story changes to a little bit more. What kind of future do you want to create? So for me, it went a bit from Boy, did I not win the lottery on mothers-in-law, which was my story for a long time. <laughs> like if there was a negative lottery, that was I was the winner of that. And I highlighted every conceivable thing she did wrong because that fit in with my story. That's what we do, right? I mean, it was my story. So, you know, she was just a bit player in my story. When I, when I decided that I wanted to move on, it was like, well, what do I want? Well, the story changed to, Fred, you better figure out how to deal with this so you and your wife don't fight so much. It had nothing to do with her mother anymore. And it had to do with creating a better future, not about arguing about the past. And it had to do with me being responsible for managing myself. So what I'd like you to do is whatever that thing you wrote those three little things about, what, what would a possible story be? And again, you know, I... I'm, I'm giving you like the um, Reader's Digest quickie view, but I think you're getting a theme of what this process is from grievance to freedom. It's your freedom. The world doesn't have to change. But if you're not trapped by a dead-end story, then you have some freedom. So what I'd like you to do is whatever you wrote those three little things about, just stop for a minute and ask yourself, what would a, what would a more forward-looking, hopeful story sound like? 
in your mind, what would I be saying? Remember, it's hope, it's forward-looking. And it's about you. It's not about them or it or the group. It's about you. So I'd like to be able to, you know, be in a room with my kids and my ex and just be okay. That could be a goal. But how do you get there? Well, I can't yell at him every five minutes if that's what I want. (laughs) I can. But this is your story and your future. Okay, one more guided imagery. And I think I've gone about as far as I can in this time because I'll take a few questions. Um, let me, I'm going I'm to give you a few minute guided imagery practice on what I just did. And this will be an eyes closed version. So um, if you'd again put your technology somewhere where it's not going to disturb you. And very gently allow your eyes to close. And relax your shoulders, relax your back, just get comfortable. And, and I mean that, like, relax your belly. Quiet down. And, and crucial pieces, when you inhale, please allow your abdomen to expand. That's how your brain knows you're safe. Your brain knows you're safe when your belly's relaxed enough to expand on the inhalation. So you want to inhale, allow your abdomen to expand. Exhale, allow your abdomen to contract. It's done through your belly, not your shoulders, not your chest. If you don't feel safe enough to breathe this way, that's where the practice starts.
and then bring an image to your mind of someone you really love. Please bring an image to your mind of someone you really love. Bring an image to your mind of someone you adore and try to feel that affection in your heart. You want to, you literally want to feel it in the area around your heart as best you can, that you're at peace and you're safe because you can love. And then you just want to do one more thing from this kind of peaceful place. Just picture yourself like whatever that last situation is that we wrote about, that you wrote about for a moment. Just from this centered place, picture yourself being at peace around that situation. Because all you want to do is take the peace now, project it out in the future a little bit, and just see yourself with equanimity, with acceptance towards your own life. You can, you can image it before you can do it. And then let that go. Let the image go. Let the feeling go. Just relax. And then gently open your eyes. And this, this will be the last thing that I talk about, which is um, you can either rehearse success or failure. So when we're in the midst of a grudge, like I was with my mother-in-law, I was always rehearsing failure. They're going to be terrible. I'm terrible. We'll never figure it out. They're the same crappy person that they were 30 years ago. So we're always picturing failure. 
and we make it worse. Always. You have an opportunity to picture success so that you can start to craft a better story. So I see myself, let's just say, walking in, seeing my mother-in-law, she says something unpleasant, and I see myself just letting it go, like just shrugging and letting it go through me. So then I'm not the prisoner of my story anymore. She doesn't have to change at all. But I need to. And once I, my story stops being such a prison, I have some flexibility there. I'm not just helpless. So a lot of forgiveness is our internal coming to peace with our life. We don't need to blame people or the past if we're at peace with our life or more at peace. We also, after a while, it doesn't serve us to blame people because we're not at peace, that's up to us. There's a big difference between two months or six months or even a year after horrible things and five years. It's helpful short term to be angry and frustrated. It's not helpful long term. Uh, I'll finish with, I had one in my life, really bad romantic relationship that just was a a cesspool. And when it ended, I gave myself four months to bitch about her to anybody I could force to listen to me. I, I, I can't tell you how annoying I was. But it was it was my understanding that you have to grieve before you can forgive. And you got to get it out. And you can't stuff it. And your feelings are not wrong. So I bitched and complained for four months. And then I realized I didn't need it anymore. It wasn't helping me. For about two months, it was a lifeline. You know, really like, oh, another person I can bitch to. This is fabulous. It was the highlight of my life. And then you start realizing that it's not going anywhere. So since I had, you know, I had studied this a bit, I recognized I need to stop. And then I need to look at what did I learn and what do I need to learn? So it didn't take that long to fully forgive this experience, but it started with grieving, with anger and sloppy self-pity and all sorts of other things, because that's essential. But it has to stop. That's, that's, That's the extra piece. It has to stop. And I just 
gave you pieces of how it is we teach people to stop. But a lot of it is not just stopping, but starting to see things much more deeply and broadly and with a much more open heart. And you can't like this. This is where I'll stop because I got to go in a few minutes. Um, the way I view this is. It's like the sun is out there. Sunshine. And every now and then there's like a solar eclipse. So the moon gets in front of the sun and you can't see the sun for a time. But it's not like the sun went anywhere. Our grudges are like an eclipse. We make believe that because we can't see the sun anymore, because we have a grudge there, that the sun is gone. That's what we make believe. And so what we recognized decades ago was, well, just move to a place where there's no eclipse. That's called gratitude and monitoring your speech and kindness and legitimate grieving and all the other positive steps. But the sun never goes anywhere. So when you start seeing things more clearly, all sorts of insights come. Anyway. Um, I'll take a few questions. I, I thank you for your attention and your time. Um, the book I wrote is called Forgive for Good. Um, it's been around for a long time. It's one of the one or two best-selling forgiveness self-help books in the market. I mean, it's not like um, Fifty Shades of Grey, but it sold a couple hundred thousand copies, you know. It's been helpful to a lot of people. And, and if any of you want like short-term couching from me on forgiveness, you're welcome to contact me. I do short-term, I have a short-term practice. I don't take long-term clients. I take people, if you know anybody who want like handful, half a dozen max, two sessions often on how do you let it go? Like, I'm, I'm, that's my interest. Um, so if you or anybody wants that kind of modest time, I'm, I'm available. The coronavirus has forced me to be more available because I'm not traveling so much. Um, I'll put my email on the chat screen. But again, if there's a question that you think is relevant, um, some, you, a couple of you are welcome to ask. Um, so um, does empathy to say the person that you um, are having a hard time forgive have any part in this or is the focus really on ourselves? Empathy is hard for people who have hurt you. And, and one of the ways that I've seen people make it harder for themselves is asking themselves to have empathy. 
So uh, it's a common kind of therapeutic thing to say, well, you know, your dad's a shit because he was treated like a shit. Um, That's fine. I'm going to tell you that you'll get further by having deep and serious empathy for yourself, not for them. I love that. That's great. That, and you know what? You have absolutely transformed the, <laughs> and her is a testament to this, the one person, the ex that I could not forgive. And, and our relationship, you know, we have continuing stuff going and this, everything you've said helps me so much. Just let it go. And, 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 and I appreciate what you said here today. About- well, and, let, and let me just say one more thing. It is really hard to have empathy for yourself as a vulnerable, suffering human being. Empathy does not include hate or revenge or bitterness. It is a openness to your own vulnerability. And if you can hold that for a while, that will help transform you. Like, don't worry about them but open to the fact that, boy, this is a very difficult life experience for me. I hope you hear that. Yeah. And it, it's a softness and a kindness to your suffering. Don't let them worry about their suffering up front because it is really hard to do when they have harmed you. Wow. Thank you. I had a, my years ago when I was a teenager, my brother beat me up, hit me in my eye. I still have vision problems. He was very violent, cursing. I have that grievance. I still carry it with me now. I don't know how to change that story into something positive. I don't know how to do it because every and I, I try to you know be be kind with him and everything, but it still is there. It still is there. The pain. The, the hurt and I really want to get past it because it really has held me back for so many years. I know it's a block. I know it's a block. I can't get past it. Um, what becomes hard is to recognize that the content doesn't matter as much as you think it did that what matters is the process. So if there's a story of of real harm done to you in the past, um, there are multiple issues and I can't know right now, like the range of this, but when we are, um, when we've practiced a story for a long time, then that story starts to feel like the truth because it's so practiced. And it's very hard to substitute a new story for something that we held as true. You know, they harmed me, it was their fault. And there was a period of time when it may have been true Now the problem is that what was true in the past is actually my enemy, my story and my stuckness. 
and we don't add that piece to our truth. So if you're stuck, and it's a big ask to go from a story that we held is true to a new story, just change the story all the time you tell it. Just change it. Doesn't matter in what direction, but you want to shake yourself out of believing there's one like accurate thing because it keeps you miserable. So one time you can even describe them as worse than they were because that shakes up this story. Another time you can practice, um, you know, making excuses for them. Another time you can just simply talk about how it was too much. Another time you can try empathy. Just don't tell the over-habituated story again. And then you will see that you have some control over this. But if you try to go from a completely well-rehearsed practice story to a new one, that's too big an ask. Yeah. So you have to, you have to do it in little steps. Yeah. I think what you said there, Fred, is that it empowers you to know that you can change the story when you do it incrementally. That's, that's brilliant, actually. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Herb, we've been doing this for a long time. And we have, you know, these are some of the deepest issues that humans deal with. Right. What do we do when we've been mistreated or who even knows what the word is? Uh, Fred, thank you so much. I heard a beautiful analogy the other day that I was hoping you could comment on in reference to your book. The story goes like it's a hydraulic system. I have these stories inside me and the gasket is gonna blow. And you mentioned this, the adrenaline. And this writer was saying, it's actually more like a jukebox that I can decide what records to play. And the idea that those other bad records are gonna blow up the jukebox is absurd, right? And I love, and I was hoping you could maybe observe that. And also in your book, I love how you talk about the house and the beautiful real estate and the beautiful front of the house <laughs> and, yeah. and how much real estate will assign to the old story. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Thank you. Thanks for making that time today. You're very welcome. Let me give you one more um, kind of um, imagery of that. And um, so like, if you have a long-standing fight with somebody or an argument or something where you think they did wrong and they don't see it the same way, the imagery that I developed around that was, um, you know, when you used to go to multiplex theaters and it'd be like eight different movies and you'd go in to see one movie and they'd go in to see another movie and you came out and you didn't have the same experience. But we keep on expecting people to have seen our movie. And then we criticize them when they saw a different one. So I remember, you know, if, if, um, if I, you know, if I went in and saw a love story, and somebody else saw a platoon. 
we're going to have a really different discussion. <laughs> I'm just, you know, these simple il illusions help because, um, like, we're all the same. We're all the same. We have, I mean, we're not exactly the same, but we're same enough. Same enough. And it's just just hard for us to recognize that everybody has their own unique perspective on things based upon their past, based upon their experience, based upon their physiology. And because of that, many people do crappy things and we often overreact and we're not watching the same movie. Quick general question. So, Fred, do you have any suggestions when you're in the pattern in a relationship where you complain? Like, that's how you relate. You sort of talk. I, I used to live in another state and I call a neighbor and she's telling me the gossip about who's building without a permit and what's going on. And I jump right into it and we get off the phone and I just have that yucky feeling. It's just a really yucky feeling. So I would love your thoughts on how to, if you have suggestions for how to approach a dynamic in a relationship when you connect around complaining or, or gossiping. Um, Why wouldn't you just tell them that you're not interested in gossip or complaining? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really. Nothing like a direct approach. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, the simplest answer, not always, it doesn't always work. But the simplest answer is just talk about it. Yeah. Right? If you have a relationship that's built on anything that you don't like, talk about it. Right. Right? You don't have to make it that complicated. Mm. Like, you like peanut butter. I like something else. Can we talk? Yeah. Yeah. The one, the one real advice that I will offer, though, is one, ask for permission. So, you know, ask somebody, can we talk about this? They say no, that's information. They say yes, good. Ask if we can talk about it. And second, don't make it a dump fest. Mm. When you ask to have a conversation, it's called two ways. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was really a wonderful combination. I'm um, coming at this, coming at forgiveness from two different places. So I came into the workshop today with my list of horrible people, all their sins. <laughs> and I find uh, partway through here that I'm rising to the top, that uh. the way... <laughs> The way that I have talked to my, the story that I have about my not being able to recover in everything that I've tried in all the years that I've been in program, blah, 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 um, is my, feels like my place where I need the biggest forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's true for many, many people. Yes. 
And and do we just apply the same? I mean, one thought I had was, okay, well, I better write my story down because there's some really very well-developed story in there. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on for a long time. So I could write that down. The thing that blew up, the thing that blew up my story was doing an inventory out of the big book with the guidance of a man who was able to interpret and expand the directions out of the big book in the resentment inventory. My approach is much broader than the big book includes in the sense of any formal, but it's implied in it. And um, so that might be a, a, a help to you is uh, rewriting your story, but doing it through the lens of the uh, big book inventory process. And that's, that's where I mentioned at the beginning of the workshop today that I'm focused on column three and column four this year for people to give them some practice in blowing up their story, quite frankly. Thank you so much for doing this. I wanted to be a little prepared, so I watched I watched the one from last year. Yeah. So it's pretty great. And this one just seems like profoundly more yeah. revealing. Yeah. Um, so, okay, for me, well, first of all, I like to walk, walk around kind of thinking, well, I'm not really a resentful person anymore, you know, and then listening to everything today, I'm like, that is such a load of crap. I'm resentful all day long about everything. But my big one is, um, my, like, I don't tell these stories anymore. Thank you, God. But, uh, and I don't have any communication with certain like family people anymore, but I still have this one resentment against my sister for, you know, my, my thinking is she ruined my childhood and why should I ever forgive her? Because I don't want to let her off the hook. Like she cares. But really, really, like but, the, but the truth is, wait, 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 Constance, but who's on the hook here? Me. So you're not letting her off the hook. She's not thinking about you. No, she's not. But you are constantly. Yeah. Uh, and, and Fred said, reframe your story. Yeah. Reframe your story. Because it's not about then, it's about now. Yeah. That might have been a couple of years ago that she did something to you to, to, to perhaps in truly objective sense have uh, uh, impacted your personality and or your future. It, it may be true. But well, like over fifty. Well, like over fifty years ago. Well, I was being kind. I was being kind. <laughs> you don't have to be. <laughs> but but now, who's 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 limiting your life right now? Yeah. Not her. Your memory, your reaction, your attitude. Time to change the dial. Now easier said than done yeah the work that i've indicated in the column three column four mm -hmm. is um strenuous and embarrassing work but on the other side of it is freedom well underneath i think 
I feel so there's so much sadness and I just don't want to go there. Well, now there's that's another dimension. And, and Fred mentioned it as part of the process, grieving it. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, yeah. and, and that's your work. Yeah. Grieving it and, and the sadness about it. Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I've done this work quite a number of times, but I guess it's just not done yet, I suppose. Well, well, it, but the work that you've done has been wonderful and has brought you to a place here today where you're talking about, all right, I'm done now. I'm tired of this. I want it to change for real. Yeah, no, it's, okay. um, don't dismiss the work that you've done, but respond to the invitation to do the work in front of you. That's what this is. Yeah. Your, your whole sort of awareness now and your participation and the question that you're raising within yourself, that's your invitation to the final phase of freedom. If you don't have his book, get his book and read no, it. No, I, I, I have it. And I because of you, I, I bought it yeah. last year and I've, I've read most of it. But of course, yeah. what I skipped were a lot of the exercises. Well, <laughs> well, sure. No, if only I understand it, then I'll get free of it, right? Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like when I understand the fourth column. Oh, that's great. I understand it. No, Herb, do it. And yeah. then be embarrassed, take responsibility, and begin changing your attitude and your actions. That's, yeah. that's real AA, if you will. Attitude, Attitude and, action. and action. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But wonderful That's conversation, Carl. Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Wait, and also I love, I love, I have to say it again. I love this. Herb, is there any room for God today? Yeah, right. Right. I love that. Yeah. I have it, I have it on my desk. Well, and uh, as you have heard right from the beginning, I'm really downplaying the spiritual side to honor my relationship today with uh, Fred Luskin, but it was wonderful how he honored the spiritual side today. I was impressed with that. That was really nice. That was great. Yes, I'm reading um, Dr. Luskin's book at the moment, and I noticed that he does have um, further on, I think more towards the end, a, a section on self-forgiveness. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if he really addressed that today. I didn't remember him talking about that, but um, I have read that some, you know, self-forgiveness can then help us to forgive others. You know, like if we're sort of. Being- I, I agree. Yeah. Well, my experience with that is now in the other side of the forgiveness process, which I consider steps eight and nine, once I completed the eighth and ninth step, I found myself forgiving myself, not that I knew that I needed to, but that I had the experience that I had released myself from my negative history um, by bringing Uh, release to other people, it was that paradox that when I forgive them, I am released, which I had no idea would happen. But afterwards, I had the experience that it had been that it had been a gift to me. Mm. Does that make sense to you? I think, yeah, I think you're talking about, you know, 
how you change and your perspective changed. And probably also, I imagine, as you started doing esteemable things, you felt good, you know, about that. But I think there's a different piece for some people, like if they have a sense of shame or a lot of perfectionism or kind of weren't brought up that it was okay to make mistakes. Right. Um, there's that piece of it too. A whole bunch, a whole bunch of it. And let me tell you, you're speaking to 50% of the participation in the group, quite frankly, the perfectionists and that it's not okay to make a mistake because your mistake names you. Now, that's a totally relevant issue. Um, what I, What my experience was that I didn't know that self needed to be forgiven but my experience on the other side of bringing forgiveness to other people was that I was brought to a place of forgiveness. So the healing that I brought to other people was given to me, not because I was aware of it, but because I participated in this process. The St. Francis prayer says that to the extent that we forgive them, we are forgiven. The Lord's Prayer says that to the extent that we release them of their debt, we are released from our debt. See, this is the perennial truth that uh, Dr. Luskin was talking about. Underneath it all, there are these principles. They're just human principles, and they're really simple. Now, they've been codified by different traditions because people have the experience, but underneath the underneath the underneath, the dynamic is the same. That's why he, Dr. Luskin, who is a scientist, he doesn't have any type of formal approach to spirituality. I am absolutely not a scientist, but I have an extensive background in psychology and spirituality from the human development standpoint. That's why we can, we can deliver something today that talks about an identical process with different vocabulary and have the same results that freedom that comes from being released. Is that, I, I hope I'm addressing what your-, your, your Yes, thank you, that's, that's terrific. And I really do appreciate this opportunity that you created today. Thank you very much. I think um, one more thing I would add is that I was talking to somebody just about like feeling my feelings, feeling my pain. And she was sort of talking me through it. And she said, now send, feel what you're feeling and then send love to that feeling, surround that feeling with love. Okay. And after that, I could forgive more. I wasn't as angry after I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading. Yes. And I think this is going to be supplemental to what you're saying. I'm currently two thirds of the way through another book that father, uh, uh, Dr. Luskin uh, wrote, and that's called, um, Forgive for love. Uh, it's about uh, forgiveness in a relationship. And it just takes it from a different perspective and it reinforces uh, the whole healing process within yourself when you have this attitude. And that's, he talked a lot about having the right attitude, reframing the story. I struggled a long time with my relationship with my mother because my mom was a narcissist and she was unable to show love and affection. And, um, and so as a child, I felt unloved 
and I struggled with that most of my childhood and into my 20s. And then I got into recovery in AA and I've been sober now 28 years. And um, and that part of this working the steps allowed me to um, learn that uh, her mistakes, my mother's mistakes, you know, her mental illness and her um, inability to show love uh, was not my fault, right? That's the first one. And then I was able to create a new story, right? Like, I'm really grateful to my mother because her being the way she was allowed me to to grow into a loving, kind, compassionate, um, affectionate human being. And so she actually gave me the greatest gift by her failing uh, in many ways as a mother, right? She was a lot of great and good things too. Like I love my mother dearly, she passed away. Um, But by her failing uh, because of her mental illness, it allowed me to grow mentally and to work on myself and to overcome um, my narcissism so that I was less narcissistic and I'm a better person because of it. And, and so the story is one of strength and um, overcoming obstacles and growing. And, and, and somehow you've been given the grace to reframe the story for yourself, for your benefit. And when my ninth step to my mother, I wrote her a list of all of the ways in which she was a loving and wonderful mother. Mm-hmm. It was like a poem of the things that she gave to me. And I think there were about 12 things on that list. And it was things like art and music and travel abroad and all kinds of experiences in life. But um, so I don't that, ever that think- was choice. That was a choice. And, and it's also what you've given is a suggestion as a tool to other people for dealing with that kind of hurt and that kind of uh, uh, relationship. And that, so thank you for, for talking about the making the list even though she's dead you've made the list uh, for yourself go ahead well, I, I didn't interrupt but I wanted to highlight it yeah so I, I made that list and gave it to her as a gift yeah and she put it on her piano in the middle of her living room for her last 10 years of her life you know so oh, I see you did it before she died yeah okay and, mm-hmm. but just a you know that we came full circle and I'm no longer mad at her like I don't carry that resentment anymore, and right, it you know so it, it this process definitely works. But I think Fred's stuff today, like the complaining, I can use that with so many other people in my life, you know, because <laughs> I got to stop complaining. Well, you don't have to. He was very clear. You don't have to, but if you want to be happy. Yes, yeah, that's a suggestion. I, I think I can improve about 20 relationships in my life if I stop complaining. So I'm just, I just uh, wanted to you share know what? that. Nancy, 21, because <laughs> that, that 21st is the relationship with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that was a huge bit point that he made and now you're making. So thank you. So for that. Thanks. Thanks so much again. I just wanted to share that. Thanks. So this is Fred's uh, summary of his approach from a secular scientific standpoint. 
He says, first, we have to name it, the hurt that we experience. Next, we have to understand it, the hope, the expectation that we had. Then identify the rules, the unenforceable rules. I call them the beliefs through which we look so that we can actually see what reality is, that our beliefs are delusional. And therefore, I get to change my attitude about reality, about this event, about these people, about myself even, that en enables me to take responsibility so that I can accept reality as it is. Oh, my God, that is such an important concept. Reality is what is. I have to say it again. Reality is what is. There's no right or wrong about reality. It's my perceptions that determine for me a judgment of right or wrong, healthy or unhealthy. But then I get to make a decision to take some action. Those are the human dynamics. I get to name it up front, become conscious of all of this material, to become conscious, then I make a decision with my free will to take action. Forgiveness is a process. It's just whether you're coming at it from, as he said, all the traditions or psychology or from the 12-step process. Forgiveness is a process of change, a change in my attitude, a change in by accepting reality as it is, not necessarily as I want it or I think it should be, but as it is. And then in all caps, the actions. There's nothing happens unless I change my actions. In my meditation, I, I developed a, a phrase that I believe is true. And it's really confrontational. A forgiving person has no past. We've released it. But an unforgiving person has no future. Because we're in that bondage that I demonstrated at the beginning. The way of life that we've been given in a 12-step program. And the way of life that's given in any type of positive psychological and or religious environment is to do inventory on a regular basis to stay clean. We want to live in the light, so we need to have the clouds removed. We want to fill that channel so that we want to be conscious and pay attention and notice. And the secret to happiness, and it's really a secret, because it's not logical. It was, at first, it was opened up to me by Dennis Prager, who had done a recording on happiness. And he said, anybody who, he got my attention, anybody who wants to be happy, that's their goal, will never be happy. Because happiness is not a product, it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of my meaning broader than myself and my contribution to the people around me. Maybe I'm prejudiced in my selection, but 
that seems to be steps 11 and 12. A meaning broader than myself, a relationship with life, and the contribution to the people around me. That being helpful, as people were talking about in the parking lot where she was helpful to a person, that person was helpful to her, and then somebody caught it. It was contagious, and there were three of them helping. Please join me in this prayer. This is the prayer of St. Francis that I've, I've scrubbed it a bit to make it a little bit more present, present tense, and perhaps a little less spiritual in the traditional sense. But this is about human development, which is very spiritual. Spirit of the universe, make me a channel of your peace. That where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Listen to the reframing. Listen to the turning. Grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds it is by forgiving that one is forgiven. Paradox, paradox. It is by dying that one awakens to life. Paradox. This is a process of turning from our self-centeredness to other-centeredness. Having a sense of meaning broader than ourselves and a relationship of contribution with the people in, in our environment. Thanks, everybody. Wonderful to have you join us. And there will be more. Pay attention to your emails. Yeah.